We're here with Manjul Bhargava, who is one of the field's medalists. Congratulations <laughs> on your win. Um, you are now officially one of our favourite talks at the ICM because it was unbelievable how accessible it was to non-specialists like ourselves, but we understand that people in the field, number theorists, were equally getting a lot out of your talk. I mean, is public understanding of mathematics, popularisation of mathematics, is that is that something you're involved with yourself? Or? No, thank you for saying that. <laughs> uh, yeah, very much so. Uh, I think uh, one of the real important jobs of mathematicians is not just to do their research work, but also to reach out uh, and explain their work to the uh, community outside mathematics, and I think that's a very important job of mathematicians. We don't always do it enough. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, in the past few years I have been uh, making a, making an effort <laughs> to reach out as well and explain some of the, the beautiful things that are happening in mathematics to, uh, to outside the mathematics community. And do you think that perhaps the area of number theory is particularly lends itself to popularization? Because there are some results that it, that even though they're very very difficult to prove, but they they can be explained without too much technical knowledge. So Rachel is in the process of writing a beautiful article based on your talk because it was so accessible. So mm -hmm. do you think that m number theory is good for that? Yeah, number theory is a great area for that because a lot of the problems, very fundamental problems, they go back thousands of years before any you know before all this mathematical machinery developed and jargon developed. The basic problems of number theory remain the same for thousands of years. They've been very similar. Uh, they're they're very simply statable, and that's something that's very attractive about number theory. The methods to solve some of these problems are extremely deep, but the ver the problems that you're eventually trying to solve are very very concrete, very very accessible. Could you give an example of something that you could say a, a result, a recent result that has been around for a long time, um, that has just recently been solved and that you could state quite easily? Uh, can you give, give an example of a of a theorem that was only recently proved? Uh, of course, the the things that I talked about in my uh, in my lecture, mm. which I guess you'll be you'll be talking about, uh, are all are all questions that can be explained to to anybody mm. you know, with just uh, even the elementary school or you know junior high school background. Uh, and the methods used to solve those questions were were used all, you know a lot of modern modern mathematics. Uh, I'll give another example, maybe not from my lecture then, uh, is the question of when a mathematical expression takes every possible value. So there is this famous result from the 1700s of Lagrange, which says that every whole number can be expressed as the sum of four squares. So for example, 19 is 16 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1, so you're allowed to repeat. Uh, and this result is, is surprising to many people when you tell it the first time because the squares sort of get further and further apart as right, 1, 4, 9, 16, 25, they're getting further and further apart as you go out. And yet, no matter how big a number you take, you can always express it as the sum of four square numbers. Uh, so this is a result uh, from the 1700s of Lagrange, uh, the mathematician Lagrange. Uh, and there was not much further progress beyond this sort of question until uh, some work of Ramanujan in the 19, around 1910s. Uh, he said, well, another way to say Lagrange's theorem is that the, the expression a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus d squared represents every whole number. Every whole number can be expressed as a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus d squared. What other quadratic expressions like that have the same property that every possible positive whole number value is taken?
and he wrote down 54 more examples <laughs> of such expressions. So in addition to a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus d squared, he also wrote, had a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus 2d squared. In other words, every number is also the sum of three squares plus twice the square. <laughs> and he also said every number is the sum of three squared squares times three times the square plus three times the square. Uh, every number is also the sum of three squares plus four times the square. <laughs> uh, so and these are all also additional expressions that take every possible integer value, all the way up to a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus 7d squared. That also takes every positive integer value. Uh, but on his list... There wasn't a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus 8d squared. That's not there. Right. Because 7 is not oh, cannot course. be expressed in that form. <laughs> yeah. And is it true that on his initial list there was one expression that that leaves out just the number 15? That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know that. Yeah, yeah. So one yeah, expression that you can yeah. express all integers, all whole numbers, that's but right. except 15. That's so right. he was wrong. So that's quite funny that Ramanujan didn't spot that. <laughs> yeah, and it, that that uh, particular quadratic form is is what caused uh, the the breakthrough. <laughs> that you know, even his mistakes <laughs> sometimes were mm. were inspirational because they were a mistake for a very special reason. Uh, so that that quadratic form that he had on his list was a squared plus two b squared plus 5c squared plus 5d squared. <laughs> Turns out every number can be written like that except for 15. <laughs> <laughs> and that led in the 90s to uh, John Conway uh, proving what's called the 15 theorem. So him and his student William Schneeberger proved a theorem called the 15 theorem, uh, which stated that if you have a quadratic expression like this uh, in any number of variables, uh, but where you also allow cross terms, like 2bc or mm -hmm. 2ad, uh, but only those cross terms should have even number uh, coefficients. So uh, we'll allow things like a squared plus 2bd plus b squared plus 3c squared plus 4d squared, things like that. Uh, so it's still r restricted on the kinds of quadratic expressions that he was considering. But if you allow cross terms, but only with even numbers in front of them, then what he and Schneeberger showed is that if such a quadratic expression takes the values 1 through 15, That's right. then it takes all positive integer values. Mm. So if and only if. Yeah, so such a quadratic expression takes mm. all positive integer values, if and only if it takes the values 1 through 15. Right. <laughs> and 15 turned out to be so key <laughs> in this whole theory. <laughs> uh, and it, that the reason you need 15 is illustrated by Ramanujan's mistake, <laughs> a quote-unquote mistake. It turns out that that, that particular quadratic form that he wrote down was very key in making further progress on this problem. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so th the, the more recent result. Uh, so he also, remember this 15 theorem of Conway Schneeberger was for restricted quadratic forms where those cross terms are only allowed to have even coefficients. If we want to allow general quadratic expressions with whole number coefficients, uh, is there a similar statement? Uh, and he and uh, Conway and his students conjectured that you probably need to go up to the number 290 oh. in that case. And that was their 290 conjecture. So the 290 conjecture is that if you have a quadratic expression that only takes positive values, then it takes all positive integer values if and only if it takes the numbers 1 through 290. Mm -hmm. That's Conway's 290 conjecture. <laughs> it's probably one of the few places the number 290 plays such an important And so that was proven in recent work with uh, Jonathan Henke. So he and I proved this. Uh, we were graduate students together, good wow. friends in graduate yeah. school. And after graduate school, we thought, let's, let's try to prove this. <laughs> 
and that was a, a really fun project to work on because didn't you reduce the set as well that you didn't need to check for all numbers yeah you don't need to check everything between 100 uh, 1 and 290 you only need to check a certain set of 29 numbers <laughs> in in that range of 1 mm. through 290 and if those 29 numbers are there as values then all integers are there as values that's, that's what the 290 theorem we call it the 290 theorem now <laughs> so is the 290 theorem depending on 29 numbers is that yeah. Is that coincidental or is there some no, reason that it's I a think it's coincidental. Of 10? Yeah, okay. I, we don't see the reason. Okay. <laughs> does, the, yeah. does the fact that it's those particular numbers that you need to check, does that tell you something about the structure of the positive integers? I mean, is there something about those numbers that's significant that. that yeah, I don't know that I can say too much about that other than for each one of those 29 numbers, we can write down a quadratic form, a quadratic expression that takes every value except, except that number. Right. <laughs> So you definitely need those numbers, yeah. and you don't need anything else. Ah, that's and, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and the proof of that was very fun, uh, we, uh, in that it requires both theoretical mathematics in a very serious way, and also computational mathematics. Uh, so it required a lot of programming and, and new algorithms that are only available. It's kind of interesting. The theoretical side, uh, the, the things we used are, are very uh, our techniques for mathematics that have only risen very recently. And same on the computational side. So like all the techniques that we needed are, have only just recently arisen and we're able to combine all of them, both the pure and the computational, uh, mm -hmm. to prove this That's result. Yeah. Um, I remember um, in the material about your work um, and how you got into working in mathematics, it said that you one of the things when you were younger you read something by Gauss one of Gauss's works and and actually began to work on problems from that how old were you when you were reading that and what what was it that that about it that caught your interest um, I started reading Gauss when I was in graduate school actually uh, there's some things that I read before Gauss that were that got me interested in Gauss namely uh, it turns out my son's my uh, grandfather is a scholar of Sanskrit uh, and so I learned a lot of Sanskrit growing up <laughs> And so uh, I was introduced to the work of Brahmagupta uh, when I was young. And one thing that really inspired me at that time was, uh, was the following uh, theorem. So instead of looking at numbers that are sum of four squares, turn out every number is a sum of four squares. So let's look at the numbers that are sum of two squares. Okay, not every number is a sum of two squares. Five is. Five is one plus four, but seven is not. Six is not. Uh, so what can we say about the subset of numbers that are the sum of two squares? And one ancient theorem that I saw in Brahmagupta's work is that if you take the product of two such numbers that are each the sum of two squares, then the product is again the sum of two squares. So mathematicians would say this set is closed under multiplication. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and there's a generalization of this result in there, namely that if you take a number that's the sum of a square and n times a square, and you multiply it with another such number that's a square plus n times a square, then it will again be a number that's a square plus n times a square. For any value then, this is true. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that uh, that's something I read in, in Brahmagupta. Brahma's uh, Purchasiddhanta. It dates back to about the year 600. And it was written in Sanskrit. I got to, and that was something. Did you that read it in the Sanskrit? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's I awesome. had the Sanskrit version and a translation, but this was one way that I was learning a little bit about Sanskrit. Nice. And yeah, I found that. I, I loved that fact. I thought mm. it was really cool that it's, it's al and that, that's always true, and it has a really nice explanation in terms of the complex numbers, and so that got me excited about the complex numbers. Uh, so that was something that came up in my childhood. Uh, and then in graduate school, 
uh, I learned that there was a vast generalization of this of Gauss. Uh, so, um, I guess that was about 1,200 years later after Brahmagupta. There was a lot of stuff that happened in between on this result of Brahmagupta. It's called Brahmagupta's identity. Uh, there was a lot of work in between, and it culminated in Gauss. <laughs> and what Gauss showed, uh, what Gauss showed how to decide when you can have the following statement. If a number is represented by a certain quadratic expression, and you multiply it by a number represented by a second quadratic expression, when can you always say that the result thing product will be always represented by a certain third quadratic expression. <laughs> mm -hmm. So for example, a squared plus b squared, a squared plus b squared always leads to something of the form a squared plus b squared. a squared plus nb squared times something of the form a squared plus nb squared always leads to a third expression of the form a squared plus nb squared. And they're the original results you read in Brahmagupta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an example of Gauss's question. And Gauss wanted to know, can we generalize this? Mm. If I take a number of a of the form of a certain quadratic expression and I t multiply it with another number of the form of a second quadratic expression, can I always say that it will be a number uh, that's taken by a certain third quadratic expression? And he classified all such triples of quadratic expressions for which you can say that. Mm. Uh, and that's called Gauss composition. Mm. If, if, the, if, the, if you could make that statement for some set of three quadratic expressions, then you say that the product of the first two quadratic expressions is the third under Gauss composition. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. what Gauss composition is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, so I read that as a graduate student, and, and I was amazed by it, of course. Uh, it's, it's something that takes Gauss something like 20 pages to prove. <laughs> and then you discovered a new way of looking at it using a Rubik, Rubik's cube. Uh, yeah, yeah. So how did that happen? And it was at midnight, was it? <laughs> <Or> <laughs> yeah, <something>? yeah, <laughs> I still remember that. Yeah, and I tell people that often. Yeah, I just remember I was in my dorm room. <laughs> And uh, I'm getting ready to go to bed, and uh, you know, I have these Rubik's cubes in my room, and I was just looking at one, and I just <laughs> uh, have this memory of thinking, well, what happens if you put numbers on the corners of this Rubik's cube <laughs> instead of just thinking as a simple cube? Think of it with numbers on the corners. In other words, like a three-dimensional matrix. In school, we always think about two-dimensional matrices. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what would happen if you looked at a three-dimensional matrix? And I had these cubes that was imagining numbers on the corners, and that gives you a two-by-two-by-two two two matrix of numbers eight numbers, right, because yeah. there are eight corners on the cube. And I put numbers on the corners of that cube, and I did some manipulations, <laughs> and I saw three quadratic forms coming out, <laughs> three quadratic expressions coming out. And it turns out that those three quadratic expressions, I sat down and were at the <laughs> I decided not to go to sleep. <laughs> I thought, let's figure out what these three quadratic expressions, how are they related? And it turns out that their product is... Uh, is trivial in, in this Gauss composition law. So, in other words, it gave a very symmetric way of viewing Gauss composition in a very simple, <laughs> few lines <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, way instead of the, the difficult mathematics that I had so read in Gauss. So, would you like to, m if you could meet Gauss, would you show him your. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, yeah, I would, would love to show him that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I often think the mathematics that I do would have been very exciting to the people in the 18th and 19th centuries. I think my, my mathematics fits very well <laughs> in those centuries. In those centuries. Yeah, yeah. And is it nice? Read, I know um, when we get the opportunity to read original texts or, or very old translations of original texts. Even though I'm not working on the mathematics, I'm maybe writing about it. It's still incredibly exciting. You feel the kind mm. of nearness to, to right, the work. Right. I mean, is that is that is that what has led you to sort of sometimes work on these old texts? No, completely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, 
when one's reading the texts in the original, first of all, it's just very exciting from a historical point of view. You're mm. seeing it as it was discovered. Mm. Uh, but also from a mathematical point of view, it's very exciting to see how it was when it was discovered. Because, for example, Gauss composition. It was discovered in a certain way, and then 200 years of modern mathematics was piled on top of it. It's been reinterpreted numerous times in much more fancy mathematical jargon uh, with, uh, with quick, elegant proofs in terms of this complicated mathematical jargon, and that's the way it's taught now. Yeah. And we sometimes then lose sight of how it was originally thought about. And of the intuition, perhaps, Yeah, as well. exactly. Mm. So by going back to the original, uh, you can bypass uh, the way of thinking that people had, had history has somehow decided to take. And by forgetting about that, you can then take your own path. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, sometimes you get too influenced by the way people have thought about something for 200 years, that you're, if you learn it that way, that's the only way you know how to think. But if you go back to the beginning, forget all that new stuff that happened, go back to the beginning, think about it in a totally new way, and develop your own path. But there's a it freedom almost. There's going a freedom, back yeah. There's a freedom of that ignorance, in fact, yeah, you know, and yeah. just knowing how something happened, but not knowing anything else. Mm. Mm. And then and then paving your own path yeah. <laughs> from there. Do you there. think that could yeah. be useful in, in schools, for example? Do you think there are certain mathematical areas that maybe could be taught from the point of view of the people who first discovered it, so that their intuition and their f them feeling their way towards the answer becomes part of be Absolutely. being taught? Because especially at school, we often get presented with uh, accomplished facts, facts in a way. So do you think that yeah, would be I interesting? I think, uh, I think that all the time about our school education that... Um, our math education is often, here's a problem, sounds a little bit artificial, but here it is, and here are the steps that mathematicians have developed to solve it, mm. memorize this, and then do it robotically, and that's how, that's a lot of how math classes are, and that's not the way it should be, I think, I think mm. it, it should, it, I mean, even going, not just going back to the beginning, but even having the students discover it for themselves, so that they mm. pave their own way of how to think about things. If you think about things the way someone else does, then you will never understand it as well as if you think about it your own way. Mm. And the best way to get people to think about it their own way, students in particular, is for them to discover it themselves or to discover it in the most bare bones way. Don't give them too much. Yeah. Discover it yourself, play around with it, experiment, mm. and then come up with, uh, with the results yourself. Develop your own way of thinking about those sequence of steps, and mm. then you'll also understand why those sequence of steps <laughs> are relevant. Mm. Maybe you'll develop your own sequence of steps, and then of course you'll know why you're doing it that way. Uh, that creative process, yeah. uh, if they're exposed to it right away, instead of learning someone else's creative process <laughs> uh, in this memor in this memorized way, if they were able to just learn it very bare bones and then just discover things on their own. You can, you can hint. You, know, you can give hints along mm. the way, but have them, you know, have them develop their own way of thinking about it. At least play with it. Play with it. it yeah. yeah. Develop mm. your own way of thinking about it instead of the whole class just. Oh, here are the ten steps that mm. you know they they memorize it in exactly the same way. Nobody has their own way of thinking. Yeah. That's not. Uh, that's not the way uh, science can progress, or yeah. or people can. Re or it's not even the way that people can really enjoy it. Mm. For me, you know, when I had that new way of thinking about gas composition, that was the moment when I really truly enjoyed <laughs> understanding what's going on because yeah. mm -hmm. that's when I really did 
truly understand going with that. I could have regurgitated exactly what Gauss did or regurgitated exactly what modern mathematicians, how they reformulated everything. But when I had my own way of thinking about it, that's when I really felt, now I understand, and this is really fun, and this mm. is really great. <laughs> and I understand you're also a tablet player. Tablet. Yeah, I try. <laughs> and um, there's often people talk about the connection between mathematics and music, and I know from having a percussionist friend that the combination of rhythms, particularly an instrument like that, is, is I've always found it really fascinating how they fit and how you mm. can change rhythms within the same kind of time. I mean, do you, when you're playing, do you, does it feel mathematical to you, or or are they, or are they just two different sort of instinctive? Yeah, I definitely spend a lot of time thinking about the mathematics behind various musical compositions, uh, mm. especially tabla compositions. Uh, I actually find that that hurts my playing. <laughs> Uh, in the play. sense that I, I start to think about it too much, even while you're playing, and when you're mm. playing, it has to be in the when you're, and when the you're on the stage, uh, that it has to be so absorbed that it becomes just an intuitive process. And uh, tabla playing is improvisational. Mm. There's not that much time to think on stage about oh, this is an interesting mathematical concept. <laughs> uh, so. One has to learn to separate that a little bit. You have to be learn to also be in the moment, spontaneous. Uh, but again, it all has to work out mathematically. Mm. And that's something that comes with a lot of practice, uh, that you internalize that mathematics so much that you're not even thinking about it. Mm. Uh, but if you're not on stage, uh, thinking about the mathematics of it is incredibly fun, and it's kind of amazing that people have come up with... Because uh, the there's sort of, of a rolling of... Um, of um, the sort of development of, I can't remember what the name is, of the standard um, thing you start with and you kind of develop it and then it always right, resolves right. again. And right, it's, right, it's right. An and exactly in the amount of time that it's supposed to and yeah. they always land on the downbeat and yeah. all, you know, all this mathematical stuff has to mm. happen. But yet uh, there's a lot of creativity and uh, what you know, what's going to sound beautiful is there isn't mm. a formula mathematically for yeah. that yet. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, so that also is part is going into it as well at the same time, and that uh, those two things together is what creates a stage performance. Mm. So thank you very much for the interview. Uh, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Thank, thank you. you.